I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And Tomiwa Owolade is a journalist and critic based in London. He has written for many publications, including The New Statesman, The Times, and The Sunday Times. And he is the author of the book, This Is Not America, Why Black Lives in Britain Matter. Tomiwa, it's wonderful to have you back on the show. Thank you, Michael. Now, last we spoke in November of 2021, you were in the process of writing This Is Not America, your first book, six days ago on June 22nd, it published. So separate from the content of the book itself, which we'll get to in just a second, how does it feel having it out to share it with the world after working on it for so long in private, just to be done with it? It feels like a great relief. Some people have wondered if it's similar to giving birth. Now I'm not in a position to comment on that, but it does feel like a great relief to finally have the book out. (laughs) I imagine it is a painful process, probably not painful in the same way that childbirth is, but painful nonetheless. Yeah. In fact, the writing process itself was quite smooth. I think the most difficult part of the conceiving the book, so to speak, is the editing process and the copy editing process. There was a lot of, to use a very quaint British word, a lot of flaff or faff actually, <laughs> there are lots of faff involved. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm very relieved that the book is finally out. I hope as many people as possible read it. It's great to hear that the writing process itself was so smooth. I know that writers can sometimes struggle with what to leave in, what to take away, especially when the book contains autobiographical elements. I was talking recently with another author and they were just talking about how when you're writing something that's autobiographical, the the trick is figuring out which parts of your lives are not only interesting to you, but are also narratively interesting and therefore interesting to readers who don't know you. Mm, yes, there's that that thing about people finding your dreams far less interesting than you would. <laughs> and I guess something similar is going on when people write autobiographically. The only elements of autobiography in the book are those that are strictly relevant to the ideas that I explore. Which I imagine helps you stay focused on which parts to keep in and which parts to leave out. Definitely. And I think the reason why the writing process went quite smoothly, relatively speaking, is because this is a subject I'm passionate about. And I think if you're writing about something you are passionate about, something that you've spent a lot of time reflecting upon, that passion, that intensity would drive your writing. Yes. Now, for people who might be listening who are unfamiliar with your work, if they just take a quick glance at your biography, you're Nigerian-British, born in Nigeria, but raised and acculturated in Britain. And so they might just think at a glance, oh, of course, you know, someone, a writer racialized as black in Britain seems like an obvious topic to write about. But it's not the fact that you are racialized as black that led you to write this book specifically. In the book, you write, quote, To help us understand that Britain is not America, we should first see America as a distinctive country rather than as a model to interpret race in other countries, end quote. Now, this seems like a rather obvious statement on its face, yet you felt compelled to write an entire book based pretty much on this premise. So out of all the framings through which to write about race, one could write about race from a million different angles. Why did you choose this framing specifically? And why is the obvious no longer obvious? I chose this framing specifically because in the summer of 2020, after the murder of George Floyd and during the protests, both in the US and also in the UK, I found the conversations around race extremely reductive. So in the UK, I saw people, British activists, 
using a term like BIPOC. And for those of your listeners that don't know, BIPOC is an acronym that stands for Black Indigenous People of Color. Now, a term like BIPOC would make sense in America. America has, of course, historically oppressed and discriminated against its indigenous native American communities. What I found strange was the term BIPOC being used in a British context, because indigenous in the UK context would refer to what exactly? The Welsh? The Celts? The ancient Britons? Using a term like BIPOC in a British context carries with it, I would argue, a far-right resonance rather than something you would expect a progressive anti-racist to use. So for instance, somebody on the far right might say we need to protect the indigenous communities of the UK against a wave of existential invaders, against a wave of immigration. And I think the BIPOC example is such a stark illustration of a wider phenomenon, which is that all too often we internalize an American way of looking at race and we assume that we can do the same using that framework, using that lens to interpret race in our own country. And by our, I'm specifically referring to the UK. The truth of the matter is that the Black British population is very different in many relevant ways to the Black American population. So Black British people, for example, constitutes about 4% of the overall British population. Black American people, by contrast, constitute 13% of the overall American population. And I think it's also worth noting as well that from the time America became an independent republic in the late 18th century up until today, there has always been a substantial minority of the population that is black, 13% today. But at other times, it's gone up to about 19%. Whereas in the UK, the black British population is at its highest point, at 4%. I think another relevant distinction between black American people, generally speaking, and black British people, is that up until 25 years ago, the majority of black British people were black Caribbean people, which means that their families came from Caribbean countries like Jamaica, Trinidad, and Guyana. But as of today, because of a massive influx of immigration from Africa, the majority of black British people are now black Africans. In fact, there are twice as many black African people as there are black Caribbean people. And I think this is worth noting because this means that the majority of black British people are not descended from enslaved Africans that were transported to the new world, unlike the vast majority of black American people. Yes. Now, I spoke about this a little bit with former guest of the show, Anaya Fullerin Aman, on her episode about how, and I am reticent to overuse this phrase because I feel like if we use it too much, which it really is currently being used too much in my view, it loses its power, which I feel like is the worst thing we want to happen. But I think that there is a kind of conscious or unconscious racism embedded in the idea that black people from all around the world all share some kind of kinship or 
they all view the world in the same way or their problems are the same country to country. It's kind of like when <laughs> when Americans just refer to Africa as if it's a country. I feel like there's kind of an ignorance or a they're all the same kind of thinking that is implied in statements like that. And that worries me. And I think similarly to your point, Tomiwa, I remember in 2020, there were marches in the UK that I saw. It was either in 2020 or before. But I remember seeing marches in the UK where people were chanting, hands up, don't shoot. And similarly to why BIPOC doesn't work in the UK, because talking about indigenous people sounds like something someone from National Front would do. Similarly, if you're saying hands up, don't shoot in the UK, it doesn't quite work because police officers don't have guns. Yes, that's another major difference between the UK and the US. And and also the US is a, a far more violent country than the UK. It's a far more violent country than most Western democracies as well. Nevertheless, when we interpret social phenomena in the UK, many of us still do it through an American perspective. And I think a major part of it is that we watch American films, we listen to American music, we watch American TV shows, and many of us use social media. And as anyone that uses Anglophone social media is all too aware of, it's dominated by America. So it makes sense why we internalize an American way of looking at race, because we are saturated with American culture more generally. Yeah, American soft power can be used to good ends, like intertwining the interests of America with potentially hostile nations. But in instances like this, what can happen, and we talked about this a little bit in your first appearance on the show, it actually does so much more harm than good in making international populations of people forced under the same umbrella as if they are just like Americans in the ways that they think and the concerns that they have and the things that they're interested in, et cetera. Later in the introduction in the book, you write about that year, 2020, and you say, quote, every continent, including Antarctica, saw protests expressing solidarity with black Americans. The summer of 2020 was characterized for many of us by reading articles, essays, tweets, memes, images, private messages, and public announcements that expressed dismay at racism. Actors, musicians, sports stars, politicians, third and fourth cousins, and influencers took to social media to denounce the mistreatment of black people. Corporations advertised that commitment to greater racial diversity in their workplaces. Museums promised to decolonize their collections. British retailers such as Sainsbury's and ASOS made donations to anti-racist organizations. Many football clubs in the English Premier League adopted taking the knee before the start of every match. Many responses were also personal. Many white people asked about their black friends, expressed shame that they had hitherto been quiet about racial injustice and committed themselves to speaking out against any racism they encountered among their family and white friends, end quote. And one of the aspects of this moment that made me uncomfortable to me was the feeling, while there were actual racial injustices being addressed in some ways, and important conversations were being had, again, it felt like that we were speaking of Black Americans, as I think we have often spoke of them here in America, in the way that one of your secondary teachers, Miss Stewart, spoke about and to you. And we'll get to her specifically in a moment. But what I mean to say is that even when we were attempting to address actual racial injustices, I felt like we were speaking of Black Americans in a rather kind of othering sort of way that deprived them of their humanity. And this is difficult (laughs) 
for me to discuss, you know, not just because of how I look, I, I suppose, but just as one example, right? A good friend of mine who is black shared with me in 2020 after the protests began that he did experience like a kind of release when his white friends came to him that summer and apologized to him for not taking his narratives about his interactions with police seriously. So for years, he would just get pulled over maybe like half a dozen times a year and it would make him late for business things or personal outings. And then when he would get there and tell his friends like, yeah, I just got pulled over for no reason, his white friends and I, you know, I'm, I'm sympathetic to their viewpoint because if you haven't experienced this, you're likely to just believe, oh, I mean, you know, I'm sure they had some reason for pulling you over or I'm sure it wasn't because you were black. I've been pulled over by police as well. Don't worry about it. And during that summer, he told me he was like, in a weird way, it did feel kind of good to hear from them and for them to say, hey, man, I was ignorant. I didn't know. And now I get it. So there were moments like that. But I also feel like there was also a lot of conflation between events, right? So like my buddy would get pulled over for no reason, but he was never abused or murdered. And I felt like these issues were getting conflated as if every issue that has happened to any black American anywhere happens to all of them. And I feel like that kind of conversation similarly was happening in the conflation between American issues and UK issues. And so this movement, I think for me, it wasn't without positive outcomes, but I feel like the kneeling and the Congress people in Kente cloth and the reductionist framing, it all felt in some ways that it framed black Americans like as almost more alien, as more different, not less different from white Americans, Asian Americans, Hispanic Americans. And that did not feel of a piece to me with like the historic liberal project of Du Bois, of Ellison, that emphasizes common bond, you know, common Americanness and common humanity. And Du Bois and Ellison are, are two authors that you reference in the book, and, and I believe you're fans of their work. Yes, exactly. Ellison in particular. So Ellison was one of the most eloquent proponents of American integrationism, of the idea of seeing Black Americans as not simply Black people in America, but as Americans that also happen to be Black. And I think this emphasis on the fundamental Americanness of Black Americans is absolutely crucial in affirming their rights, in pointing out the fact that Throughout history, America had failed to protect and to affirm and to dignify a major component of its population. One of the striking things as well is that the average Black American can trace their ancestry further back than the average white American. And this is because of the legacy of slavery and also the fact of successive waves of European immigration from the 19th century onwards. So in a sense, Black Americans, as Ralph Ellison puts it, and also Ellison's very good friend, Albert Murray, Black Americans are in many cases the original Americans. But unfortunately, there is also a kind of worldview that's prevalent in America and also outside of it which sees Black Americans as Africans trapped in America, which sees Black Americans as Black first and views the Americanness as a noose that's oppressing their Blackness. And I think that this is not only morally mistaken, 
I think it's also mistaken as a matter of fact. And by that, I mean, if a black American visits a country in Africa where the majority of the population is black, for example, the thing that would stand out about that black American is not the fact that they are black. It's the fact that they are American. And this was emphasized to me last year when my brother's fiance and her family came to Nigeria. Now my brother's fiance is a black American woman and she invited a lot of her family and friends to Nigeria last year. I should just clarify now that they are married now, (laughs) but when I first saw them, they were still engaged. And the thing that struck me about seeing these black American people in Africa was their Americanness that stood out. Like I was going to say a sore thumb, but that would be a a rude (laughs) metaphor, but they stood out prominently. And again, I think when we think about race and identity, we need to think about it in a more holistic way because there are various countries around the world that will see black Americans as Americans first and foremost, and they will be right to do so as well. Because the things that matter or the things that shape their identity is not, again, not simply their blackness, but also their Americanness. Yes. Well, and I think this goes of all Americans is that like traveling outside of your country. And I think this is true of anyone in any country. Yeah. This is also true of Irish Americans, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Well, I mean, as someone with the last name Callahan, when I traveled to Ireland for the first time, I like made it a point not to mention that I was Irish because I did not want to be one of those Americans who was like, I'm Irish just like you, you know, like, because I I just know that that's just not the case because my ancestors came over here in like the late 1860s, early 1870s. And I'm sympathetic. And you, you talk about this in the book and I think it's well said. I'm sympathetic to black Americans who, who see a kind of a racial solidarity because that was forced upon them. They were made into this group out of whole cloth by literal white supremacy and white oppression when they came over here. So I'm sympathetic to people within the group that we call black Americans. I'm sympathetic to them feeling that way. I'm not particularly sympathetic to people outside of that group and especially to white people who in some kind of horseshoe effect on both the left and the right insist on seeing them as black first rather than, and this happens in the UK as well, with well-meaning activists who see folks like you or folks like my friend here in America and and black writers, authors, etc. as black before they are American. I want to tie a quote that you wrote from the book and then a passage from a book by Richard Wright that you have in the book. You write, quote, Americans are the most influential black people in the world. This is not because they are black. It is because they are American, end quote. And then You reference Richard Wright, the first black American novelist to be a bestselling author in the 20th century. And you quote specifically a passage from his 1941 book, 12 Million Black Voices, quote, we black folk, our history and our present being are a mirror of all the manifold experiences of America. What we want, what we represent, what we endure is what America is. If we black folks perish, America will perish. And later he writes, quote, The differences between black folk and white folk are not blood or color, and the ties that bind us are deeper than those that separate us, end quote. And this sentiment is a piece with Albert Murray, who you mentioned, who wrote The Omni-Americans, 
which is this idea that America has always been a multiracial nation and that black and white Americans have been influencing each other since before the founding of America. And this is in stark contrast to Britain in one especially critical way. And you referenced this a little bit earlier, but I want to I want to dig into the stat a little bit to make the, the point to our listeners. I had to double check these numbers because I scarcely believed it based on what the UK looks like today. But in 1951, the United Kingdom was 99.9% white. In 1961, it was still 99.2% white. And by 1991, the black portion of the population was just 1.6%. And today, to what you said earlier, Tamiwa, it's about 4%. So contrasting this to most black Americans today, like you said, being able to trace their ancestry further back in American history than the majority of white people like my own ancestors. And it's rather glaringly obvious that black people are foundational to American society in a fundamental way that black Britons, for all the contributions that they have certainly made, especially in the last several decades, are just not simply because they quite literally were not physically there. Mm, Yeah, black British people are an immigrant community. And this is not the case with black Americans. Yes, exactly. But here's a, a question to me. Why do And I know that your case is that American culture is just so overwhelmingly powerful and influential, but Black Britons have their own unique stories. And though they come from diverse locations, from the Caribbean initially and now largely from countries within Africa, but their stories are unique, their issues are specific. Why is not there a groundswell movement to highlight the individual needs, concerns, cultural contributions of Black Britons from all the diverse places and cultures from which they come to the UK, their stories and and the story of triumph against racial injustice within the UK over the last 70 years is so powerful in and of itself, is so worth telling in and of itself. Why isn't there more of a movement to highlight those stories? Why is there such a desire to link their narrative to the American narrative when they are so incongruent? I think there are many black British people and also British people of all racial and ethnic backgrounds that have tried to emphasize the contribution, the history, the struggles of black people in Britain over the past century. It's just the case that these stories are not as prominent as the stories we are told in the UK about the Black American experience. I should also add that the Black British experiences, because I like to use plural rather than singular, these experiences are still being shaped, molded, and in a state of flux, I would argue, in a state of flux far more than the Black American identity. Because I I think that Black Americans have a more stable sense of identity than Black British people. And the reason I say that is to refer to what I said earlier. Up until 25 years ago, the majority of Black British people were Black Caribbean people. But as of today, because of that massive influx of immigration, which is still carrying on today, the Black British identity, to use an inadequate phrase, is still being shaped and being melded and being defined by these various immigrant influences. But I think it's important to emphasize the 
multiplicity of what it means to be Black and British, precisely because the experiences of, say, a Black Caribbean student in school is very different to the experiences of a Black African student. And identifying these differences allows us to have a more specific approach to addressing the inequalities and also the disadvantages faced by certain Black communities. To give you a concrete example, Black Caribbean students in secondary schools in the UK are more than three times likely to be excluded from school than Black African students. And I would argue that if we genuinely care about the inequalities in our society, we need to be specific in our focus rather than making generalizations based on race. Well, we discussed this in your first appearance on the show in that unless you get specific and slice thinly about which populations within the quote-unquote black group within the UK are struggling or succeeding in a given area, you won't really be able to effectively solve a problem because you won't be getting specific enough. To set up this next question to me, I want to quote some writing by former two-time guest of the show, Brittany Talisa King. She was writing about how, in her view, and I think she makes a really good case, that Black in America is a distinct ethnicity. She writes, quote, there's a difference between these identities as someone can be white and Scottish or white and Swedish or Black and Nigerian. The same goes for Black and Black American. Our race is what marked us without our consent after African people were stolen from their original homes and enslaved as property in America. They were not a homologous group. They were grouped together with no legal identity and orphaned from their native ethnicities. But legally succeeding the Emancipation Proclamation, a new community cultivated a new heritage despite the country's original plans, end quote. It makes sense not to capitalize the word black when you're referring to someone like, let's say, like yourself, because black is the racial label, but you would capitalize Nigerian because you and your family originally came from Nigeria. So you have a country to point to. Why did you make the choice not to capitalize the word black when referring to black Americans? <laughs> I, I, think, I think it was more a stylistic, a desire for stylistic consistency rather than any kind of ideological statement that I was trying to make. To be perfectly honest with you, I don't mind seeing black being capitalized. I just have a stylistic preference for not capitalizing it. But I, I can understand why black Americans feel that they occupy an ethnicity. But as you rightly put it, this is not the case for black people across the rest of the world. Yeah, and I think it's just stylistic consistency because if I did capitalize the black in black American, then I feel that my editors would have said, oh, why haven't you capitalized black to refer to black British people or black to refer to black people from Africa? So it was, it was more to do with stylistic consistency rather than any sort of ideological desire to make a statement. What I would also say, though, is I am slightly skeptical about the ways in which this tendency to capitalize the being black isn't just confined to America. There are at least two British-based publications which now adopt capitalizing black. The Times Literary Supplements, for example, and also the London Review of Books. 
both these publications capitalize the being black. And I'm skeptical about this because they capitalize it when using black to refer not only to black Americans, but to black people more generally across the rest of the world. And as somebody that comes from a country, by which I mean Nigeria, where over 99% of the population is black and where the main dividing lines in society is not race, but other things like ethnic tribal groups, religion, geography, and other cultural factors. I just find this kind of race essentialism quite frustrating. Yeah. And, and I share your skepticism, by the way, about capitalizing it, especially outside of American contexts. And even when it began to be capitalized in full force in the summer of 2020, I was skeptical just because I am wary of anything that seeks to make an immutable characteristic the most important thing about a given person. And capitalizing something gives it prominence the way you would capitalize an official title. But I am sympathetic to, and I've come around to the views of my friend Brittany and others who I think make a good case. I should also say that one of the reasons why I'm also a bit skeptical about it is that I like changes to be organic. I like changes to occur at an organic rate. And and I always chafe against linguistic or any other changes, which I feel to be imposed top down. In that view, you and I are 100% agreed. (laughs) I mean, we could talk about Latinx all you want, speaking of linguistic imperialism. But I mean, what you're speaking of with the capitalization of being Black, especially in the British context, that feels of a piece with what you write about in the book. This idea that a concept that makes sense, whether one ideologically agrees with it or not, you can at least make a solid case for it within the context of American society. It just doesn't make sense at all. Again, sounds like something that the National Front would be advocating for in the British context. Yeah, exactly. Just essentializing all these various immigrant communities into this this one-size-fits-all racial box. Yes, 100%. I would love to talk about double consciousness with you. You dedicate a chapter of the book to this topic and why the concept is specifically rooted in an American framework and why it's inappropriate in the British context. Can you speak about double consciousness for us? Yeah, so double consciousness was a concept that was developed by somebody we've we've already mentioned in this discussion so far, W.E.B. Du Bois. Now, W.E.B. Du Bois was a scholar, an activist, an intellectual, and he conceived the idea of double consciousness to explain the very peculiar state of tension that came with being a Black American. That sense of, as he put it, two warring ideals, two warring conflicts existing within the same body. So on one side, you've got the Blackness, and on the other side, you've got the Americanness. And there is, as we said earlier, a vein of Black American thoughts that affirmed being Black and being American as two things that were continuous as two things that coincided with each other rather than being in conflict with one another. But there is also another vein of Black American thought that affirmed the importance of Blackness, a vein of thought that's often called Black nationalism and was articulated most prominently before underwent his sort of exile from the Nation of Islam 
by Malcolm X, of course. And this vein of thought views black people in America as essentially Africans that are trapped in America. This vein of thought views blackness and Americanness as two things in perpetual tension. So yeah, that's double consciousness explained in five minutes. I'm so proud of myself. (laughs) (laughs) That was a pretty good summation. You write in the book about how you don't personally experience a double consciousness specifically because you are an immigrant. You write, quote, I did not come to the UK because my forebears were stripped of their home language and culture and were trafficked to a foreign land where they were traded, brutalized, raped, and marked as inferior. I arrived instead as an immigrant from an independent African country. At home, we often spoke Yoruba, the language of my ancestors. I don't have an English name, yet I don't feel a conflict or a tension between blackness and Britishness because I don't feel my black identity as something I need to defend or hold on to. I am completely at ease with it. I have not been cut off from my roots. Double consciousness thus makes sense in America precisely because many black Americans have had their blackness demonized and marginalized by white American society, but it doesn't apply to me because I have a different set of experiences, end quote. In your talks with other immigrants from Africa, including your native Nigeria, is this sentiment widely shared, this idea of not experiencing a double consciousness, or have you noticed any effect of American cultural imperialism creating a synthetic double consciousness where there once was none? I think this is a generational thing. So amongst many younger people that were, for example, born in the UK, but might come from an immigrant family background, they do experience a kind of double consciousness. And that's because they were born and bred in the UK and have known no other country. And with this particular experience, they feel that they have no other home to return to if they feel demonized. So that sense of alienation and demonization is, I think, more acute if you are born and brought up in a place, because where else would you go to? Where else would be home to you? And I think this has led many of them to embrace their Black identity as a kind of substitute for their sense of being rejected or or the sense of being alienated from their British identity, if that makes sense. It does, but I feel like a devil's advocate would say, why wouldn't they, let's say, cling harder to their Nigerian ancestry rather than a black racial identity? Or perhaps their Jamaican identity. Right, right, yes. Many of them do. But what I would also say is that if you were born and brought up in the UK and say you visit the land of your parents, the people in that land would consider you a foreigner. Mm. whether you like it or not, because of the way you speak, because of the way you approach situations, they would consider you a foreigner. So one good example, I think, is in Barack Obama's first memoir, which I think is called Dreams for My Father, which was published in the 90s. Obama recounts when visiting Kenya, the country where his dad comes from, people in the market try to overcharge him. So his sister always insisted on following Barack Obama around the market to make sure that the grocery people wouldn't overcharge him. And the reason why they would always try to overcharge him 
tried to get more money out of him is because they could sense that he was a foreigner. They did not see him as one of them. And of course they didn't, right? I mean, it's interesting, right? Like the best repudiation of a racist's belief that a person of color in the UK, America, or elsewhere could never fully integrate, could never become fully American, quote unquote. The best repudiation is to see the treatment of that person once they return to their ancestral country on vacation, let's say. The best evidence of full integration is to see how someone like Barack Obama or, you know, the child of immigrants who was born in the UK visiting their native Nigeria or visiting their native Jamaica and just see how not only culturally different they are, but see how in many ways, I remember a good friend of mine who's Korean, Korean American specifically, their parents were from Korea, but you know they were born and raised in America and, and have been to Korea only a couple times. It's sad in a way because they have experienced othering here in America, right? Like the idea of the Asian as the eternal outsider, the eternal foreigner is a concept in American racial writing. And so this belief that like no matter how many generations you've lived here, you're always going to be viewed as something foreign. And my friend has grappled with that. The fact that he grew up in a predominantly white American suburb was not always the best shield against accusations of him not ever being fully American. And so to him going to Korea to visit and to get reconnected with his culture was something that was really important to him. And while he did experience some of that while he was there and he loved so much of what he saw, he was just simply not treated as one of them, quote unquote, when he was there. And he was fully seen as American. It was almost like a double rejection. Like he was rejected in America by many people for not being American enough and rejected in Korea for not being Korean enough. I've had this conversation with actually quite a few of my friends who are children of immigrants, whether they're from Nigeria or their parents are from Nigeria originally or Korea or South America and elsewhere, where they can kind of feel trapped in this kind of limbo between countries. And I imagine that's quite hard. Yeah, it's a kind of purgatory. Yeah. But I do know that that very experience of going back to the native land of your family reinforces your, maybe in the case of your friends, your Americanness, or in the case of people that were born and brought up in the UK, their British identity. Because this, this certainly happened to me recently when I went back to Nigeria last year. When I came back from Nigeria, I felt more British because even though I was born in Nigeria, I left Nigeria when I was nine. Yeah, I think limbo or purgatories is a good way of putting it. But in fact, <laughs> it also reinforces my sense of British identity as well in a funny way. And I think that's something that many Black Americans would feel if they do decide to, say, move to Africa. Well, and the comparison that I've made, I think even on this show a couple of years ago, and it feels in some ways like an unserious comparison, but I think it's actually quite serious. I imagine you've had this experience when you went off to university or what we would call college here in America, where I remember when I first went to college and my first trip back to my hometown after being away to college for a few months and meeting up with some high school friends of mine. Now, these were high school friends that I'd basically spent every week with since I was you know, 12 or 13 through 18. And when you spend time with any group of people repeatedly over and over, you develop your own kind of language, right? Now, that's not always slang, but by language here, I mean just like references, right? And language also in this instance, I mean, hey, remember when Steve was at 
this restaurant doing this thing. Or remember the teacher we had here who said this and then did that. Or remember our classmate who did this. And remember the store we go to that's locally owned that's here with the owner whose name is this. And then we did this. Those connected stories in which everyone knows the names, the places, the events that you're referencing, like that is culture. And so for me, it was like this alienating experience after having been gone to college for a few months and then coming back for Christmas holiday. And we were all of a sudden, all of us referencing people none of us knew, places none of us had been to, and people none of us had met. So I'd reference someone from my college. I'd reference a restaurant that the two of us went to and a story that happened with a professor. And none of the friends who didn't go to that college with me knew what I was talking about. And similarly, they'd have stories about people I'd never met and places I'd never been to and professors I'd never had. And all of a sudden, for the first time in our shared childhood, we had different stories that we were telling each other that we each had no point of reference to because only the ones of us who went to each specific college had experienced it. And that in and of itself is culture. When I went to the UK for for vacation many years ago, I had been so, I guess, brainwashed to this idea that Britain and America were so similar and British people knew so much of American culture that I was invited to this pub quiz night in this tiny little town called Castleton in the Peak District. And I'd gotten to know some of the residents there. I'd been there for a few days and they invited me to, to go to like a pub quiz night. And I was like, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, I've seen Faulty Towers. I can, I can hang. I can be a good member of your team, you know? <laughs> I'm not even exaggerating to me. I, I probably hurt the team more than I helped them. I did not know a single answer to a single question that was asked. I mean, it was like they were speaking Spanish. It was just stories, like celebrities you reference or stories, places you go or stories. And so, of course, like you feel more British than Nigerian in the same way that like I'd been away to college for a few months and I had all these names and places my friends had never heard of. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And everything we're saying is just common sense, isn't it? Nevertheless, we still espouse a very rigid understanding of race, which is weird as well, especially if we consider ourselves to be avowedly anti-racist. We nevertheless, many of us still subscribe to this rigid view of race. We assume that race can explain virtually everything when the truth of the matter is that race is only one aspect of a person's identity. There is that person's gender, class, family background, religion, nationality, cultural interests, but also that person's irreducible sense of individual dignity, which transcends all the categorizations of identity. And I think that if we want to construct a more effective and a more powerful form of anti-racist politics, we need to reject this totalizing conception of race. Yes, 100%. I think in some respects, there's like a game of chicken almost. Who's going to let go of it first? Racists who insist on seeing people outside of their quote-unquote racial group as the other, or the people who in some ways have adopted that racial identity as a, as a self-protection mechanism because of how often it's been used against them. On one hand, if you ask a marginalized group of people to set aside that racial identity, in some ways you have to assure them that it's not going to be used against them by people outside of their quote-unquote group. So how do you get both sides to stop doing it? It's a tricky bind, you know? 
But I think one way of, of trying to get to a better place is to have these conversations without the kind of stigmatization, the kind of demonization that I see all too often when, for example, white people talk about these issues, when white people try to ask questions out of a genuine and benign sense of curiosity, but nevertheless feel insecure about doing so as though they are walking on eggshells. And I think that the only way that we can get to a better place is if there is a greater level of good faith that is promoted in this discussion. I think that's 100% correct. And I would also say, I think that phenomenon of eggshell walking is, is actually specific really just to the public sphere or for white people who just don't have any close black friends. If you're good friends with someone and they know that your questions are coming from a place of wanting to understand and to be better and to be more informed, this has come from personal experience, not just when talking with friends of mine of different quote unquote races, but also different religions or just different backgrounds. I've had conversations with fellow white people who are just from different areas of the country. And I will say, I will ask them an ignorant question because I'm just not familiar with their specific regional culture. But I think when you're among friends and they know that your intentions are good and you frame it in that way, I think most people, regardless of their background, want their friends to be more informed about their own backgrounds. I think it's just that there's been this weird raising of hostilities and eggshell walking, so to speak, in the public sphere that's creating a chilling effect. But I think behind the scenes in day-to-day life, I think Americans and Britons alike are having these conversations probably pretty well. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. Let's talk about how the African immigrant experience to Britain contrasts with the experience of Black Britons with Caribbean ancestry, because you do write to make a contrast in the book, how Black Britons with Caribbean ancestry share more similarities in terms of how they view their identity to Black Americans. I'm going to quote a passage from your book, quote, it was in America that he first felt visible. It was where he first felt seen. His racial identity was treated for the most part as something worthy of pride rather than scorn or callous indifference. Though his encounter with his American friend, Emil, Phillips recognized that most black people were not Oxford-educated boys from Yorkshire, and some black people had a sure sense of themselves. This was the sort of black person Phillips wanted to be, and America provided a powerful template for this. He struggled to find a way of attaching himself to a rigid British identity, so he found it in a wider black identity that was influenced by American culture, end quote. So I'd love for you to share with us a bit about the story of Carol Phillips. Yeah, so I write about Carol Phillips in the book. And Carol Phillips was the son of Caribbean immigrants to the UK. And he grew up in a northern city called Leeds, which is in Yorkshire. And Phillips is interesting because even though he is quite obviously a black British writer, He has also been influenced to a great degree by Black American culture. And I think people from that particular background growing up in the UK during the 50s, 60s and 70s, I I think it makes sense to be seduced by the power of Black American culture. This was a time, remember, as you mentioned earlier, where the Black British community was extremely small and where there wasn't really 
a stable sense of what it meant to be black and British. But at that very time, what it meant to be black and American was very strong and manifested itself through things like black exploitation films, funk music, R&B, through the activism of Martin Luther King, through the sporting achievements of Muhammad Ali, through all of this cultural phenomena, there was a prominent and very strong sense of what it meant to be a black American. And I think it makes sense for somebody from a background that's not really not really as rooted to any specific place as black Americans are. It makes sense why somebody like Phillips would gravitate to that culture. From that same chapter on double consciousness, you write, quote, much of my frustration with contemporary anti-racism is the conviction that I am more than being black, but I am often seen for my race and little else, end quote. And then you write a bit later, quote, if you don't treat black people with the same moral standard as white people, you exclude them from the circle of humanity. I have felt this strongly for a very long time before I started to look seriously into the subject of race. It was not always the arguments that were made in defense of this worldview that triggered a negative response from me. It was the tone, a mixture of pity and sanctimony. Two incidents from my late teens illustrate my frustrations, end quote. And I think these instances are really constructive. Can you share those incidents with us and why they impacted you so? Yeah. So one of the incidents was when one of my teachers, a very sweet and slightly eccentric Scottish woman that I call Miss Stewart, which is not her real name, by the way, tried to encourage me to apply to a university which is famed for its generosity towards Black and ethnic minority students. And I found this patronizing because she was seeing me simply for my race and not for any other quality that I might bring to the university. And I've always resisted against this kind of patronization from well-meaning liberal people, well-meaning liberal white people, because I, I should also say that I come from a family and a wider community, which, insti- which has always instilled in me a sense of pride, a sense of integrity. And I feel that that sense of pride is cheapened somewhat whenever I see a figure of authority just trying to condescend to me, just trying to view me through my race and nothing else. Well, especially I imagine because Miss Stewart knew you, like knew your interests, knew what you were drawn towards, knew what you excelled at, right? Yes, yes, yes. I should also say that I've got no sense of ill feeling towards Miss Stewart, no sense of animosity. In fact, I think she's a great woman, but I do think that kind of attitude, which I found to be prevalent especially during the summer of 2020, I think that kind of attitude is not constructive enough and is not useful if we want to build a more effective kind of anti-racist politics. I think for white people, whether in the UK or America, are getting messages from the mainstream media that are telling them, and I don't know if this is the case with Miss Stewart, but I, I've seen this happen here, where they're saying, hey, white people who 
who don't have many black friends or have like a black friend or whatever, who don't have much experience with black American culture specifically. This is what black people want you to do. This is what they want you to say. This is how you should speak to them. This is what their interests are. And so if you are a white person, let's say in America or a white person in the UK, and you don't have a ton of intimate friendships or relationships with black people, and the media is telling you, hey, they want specifically black spaces. They want to be spoken to in this way. They want you to go up to them and say, hey, here's a scholarship for black people. You should apply because I want to respect your black identity. Now, are there people within, and I I hasten to use this phrase, but within black communities who would prefer to be spoken to that way, who do place their black identity first? Of course. But the error I think that's happening and might have happened with Miss Stewart is that the media in many instances is saying this is how all black people want you to talk to them. This is how all black people think. And it's kind of this insidiously racist viewpoint that says that they're all this kind of homogenous group. Yeah, exactly. And this isn't just true of black people as well. I I, I sense this kind of homogenizing tendency being imposed on quote unquote people of color, ethnic minority people more generally. BIPOC, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) Or or to use a term which is quite popular in the UK, BAME. So B-A-M-E, which stands for Black Asian Minority Ethnic, I believe. But I've always found this kind of tendency strange because why should we assume, for example, that the experiences of a British Chinese girl in school should be grouped together with the experiences of a black British Caribbean boy. Their experiences are vastly different. Nevertheless, they are still grouped under the BAME category. And if we're just thinking about something like disadvantage in school and inequality in school, it's simply the fact that white working class boys in British schools, for example, are amongst one of the groups that struggle most academically, where do they fit into this identity paradigm? Because all too often when we talk about identity and inequality and disadvantage, class is all too often obscured in these discussions. And to give you just one example, so I went to a state comprehensive secondary school in Southeast London. And in my school, the white working class kids were friendly with ethnic minority kids of all class backgrounds. The white middle class kids were also friendly with ethnic minority kids of all backgrounds. But the white working class kids and the white middle class kids were not friendly with each other. And I think this example illustrates that in the UK at least, and I think this is also true of America, class is still one of the main social dividing lines. 100%. And this is something that I've spoken about at length with guest of the show, Bertrand Cooper, an American writer who talks about how oftentimes there's almost kind of this intra-racial colonization of lower class black culture by upper class black Americans. That happens a lot where like slang and music and other aspects of of culture that originates within working class black communities 
is appropriated by upper class black Americans. And two things happen. One, white Americans just assume that it's all of a piece because I think they erroneously will often think about and refer to black Americans as if they are all in the same email chain, even though they don't live in the same zip codes, are in entirely different regions of the U.S., come from totally different class backgrounds. And then also black Americans, I think, imbibing that same story, don't see any problem with the appropriation that they're doing. And yet, to Bertrand's point, he's like, well, you know, a lot of the folks who are inventing this slang, are making this music, are popularizing these dances, they don't see any of the revenue or any of the fame when their culture is appropriated by people who only share a similar skin color or facial features, right? And yet it's all seen as part of one giant community, which to your point is just not true. There is this incredibly popular and incisive SNL skit that stars Tom Hanks. It's this ongoing series called Black Jeopardy. Perhaps you've seen the sketch that I'm about to reference in which Tom Hanks plays like this MAGA supporter, this like working class white guy. And he's the only white contestant on an all black panel of Jeopardy. And initially, both the contestants and the host are like skeptical that he's going to get any answers right, because the running joke is all the questions and answers have to do specifically with basically working class black culture. But sure enough, and the humor and the ultimate sadness that comes at the end of the sketch is that Tom Hanks's white MAGA supporting working class character understands all of the references. And you see this like cultural bond begin to happen between Tom Hanks's character, the two other panelists and the host, because they're surprised. Oh my God, like he's answering all these questions correctly. How is that possible? But it's this idea that, and especially in the UK, because UK has such a prevalent history of class segregation, that we are too often assigning to race what is actually class. Definitely, definitely. And it's something that Ralph Ellison and Albert Murray have also emphasized. And it's something that Thomas Sowell as well has also mentioned, which is that the white American working class culture and black American culture have always intermixed in various interesting ways. And but all too often we obscure those differences, even though, as that SNL skit rightly illustrates, those similarities are still there. You just need to exercise greater curiosity. Yes. I'm big on curiosity. That's a big recurring theme of this podcast is that I feel like so many things that we feel our differences are actually not once we get curious about each other. And the differences that we think exist actually aren't there once we start asking each other questions. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I've really appreciated your time with us today, Tamiwa. And as I mentioned at the start of this conversation, we last spoke in late 2021. And your episode, episode 44, was published that December. You were in the process of writing this book then. And at that time, just based on the essays of yours that I'd read, I noted in that episode that it felt like you didn't want to have to be writing about race, that it seemed like you were doing it out of a frustrated sense of duty, your words. You said in that episode, quote, in fact, I'd rather be writing about James Joyce or D.H. Lawrence or Virginia Woolf rather than writing about race discourse. And I think that's part of the reason why I'm writing this book. My goal with the book is basically all my pent up frustrations will be expended in the process of writing this book. And then I could retire myself as a so-called race writer after I finished writing the book, end quote. You said that in November, 2021. It's now the middle of 2023 and the book is out. My question to me, is have your pent up frustrations been duly expended? 
are your quote unquote race rider days now behind you? And what have you learned about yourself through the long process of putting it all on the page? My race writer days can't be behind me now because I need to promote the book and I need to keep doing interviews like this for like the next six months. My hope is that after this year, I'll focus on other things. I might return to race, but only very rarely. I would like to write about other things um, because part of the book is that Black people shouldn't be defined simply by their race. And if I just spent the rest of my life writing about race, I would be undermining that claim in itself, I think. Writing this book has also made me realize that race itself isn't just a self-contained subject. It's the subjects that also pertains to other subjects. Writing about race means that you also write about class. It means that you also write about nationality. It means that you also write about injustice. It means that you also write about culture as well. And in the book, I write about various forms of culture. I, I write about literature, philosophy, music, sports, religion. But moving on, I would like to write about all those subjects without looking at them through a racial angle. Well, again, Tamiwa, I'm so grateful that you came back on the show. You are such an eloquent and insightful writer. And whatever your next book is about, whether it's about James Joyce, D.H. Lawrence, or something else entirely, I will make sure that I'm one of the first to read it. So thank you again for the work that you do. Thank you for your brilliant writing. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, Michael. Hey there. If you're hearing this, you're exactly the person this message is for. If you're a fan of the show, it would make my day if you could give it a five-star rating and write a brief one or two-sentence review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help.